Hello, everyone, and welcome to Employment Matters, a podcast brought to you by the Employment Law Alliance, the world's largest network of labor and employment lawyers from the best law firms around the globe. I'm your host, Pete Waltz. The expectation in early months of the Biden administration was a renewed focus on immigration policy. What has changed and what can you expect to find in the near future? Well, in this episode, we're joined by a panel of experts that will dive into the immigration matters for U.S. employers. Our legal experts will review the current rules and regulations and give you a sneak peek into the future. Moderating this discussion is Todd Patopoulos, partner at Butler Snow in Tennessee. As a bonus, we had a chance to survey some of our listening audience in advance of the discussion to gather your questions, and with those, the panel will be addressing them in their commentary. Let's join Todd as he introduces this program and moderates the discussion. Thank you, Pete, and hello, everyone. Welcome to the ELA webcast today on the road ahead of the Biden administration for business immigration. We're very excited about this presentation to you today, and I'm joined by some really fantastic lawyers that I have gotten to know and rely upon much more deeply over the last 15 months during the COVID situation and the rapid change in immigration policy that we saw coming out of the last administration and then through the pandemic. So I'm really excited to present this group to you guys today. I think it's going to be a fantastic overview of where we've been and where I think that we will be going in the near future. So today's overview is going to talk about initially where we started. Over the last four years, we saw a dramatic change in policy under the Trump administration. And I think that sets the table for where we hope things are going to be going on a go-forward basis for our business immigration clients. We'll also be talking about the lingering impact that COVID-19 has had on U.S. immigration policy and then move into the road ahead under the Biden administration. Once we address those topics, we're going to start to delve into more specifics on the regulatory changes that we've seen so far And then we'll finish things up with a fantastic policy wish list to talk about where we would like to see things change for our business immigration clients. Here's our fantastic panel. We're joined by Nick Watkins with Gray Robinson in Florida, Ryan Helgeson with Vetter Price Law Firm in Illinois, my good friend Melanie Keeney from St. Louis, Missouri, Dan Oldenburg with Klein Williams, in Nebraska, and Elizabeth Gibbs in fantastic Charleston, South Carolina. So without further ado, Pete, I'm going to turn it over to our first speaker, Elizabeth Gibbs. Now, Elizabeth, you and I have spoken a lot over the last 15 months and commiserated over a lot of the policy changes that have gone forth, and and a lot of our clients don't even realize what is happening behind the scenes, but we were unfortunately on the front row to see all of that. So I'd like to Get your perspective on on where we've been over the last four years. Sure. Thank you, Todd. I have the honor of kicking things off and being the first in this journey that we are going to have through what the future may hold. Really, I think it's important to understand what it is that we may be doing in terms of where we may go through the Biden administration to understand where we've been, particularly through the Trump administration. Looking back to 2016, when President Trump was elected, we had the end of the Obama era. And while there were higher enforcement activity, there was also a lot of business-friendly immigration policies. And in fact, in the last few days of the Obama administration, 
He issued a final rule or a final rule went into effect on January 17th called the retention of EB1, EB2, EB3 workers and program improvements affecting high-skilled non-immigrant workers, which by its title really demonstrated why and how these business immigration visas and other petitions are important for the economy. And it added clarity to priority dates and grace periods and clarified portability and broadened eligibility for employment authorization, et cetera. Three days later, on January 20th, President Trump was inaugurated. And within the first week of his administration, we saw a radical shift in the paradigm as to what immigration policy was going to be for the next four years. On January 25th, five days after he was inaugurated, he issued an executive order, Border Security and Immigration Enforcement Improvement. That was the border wall. Another executive order enhancing public safety in the interior of the United States, which increased and changed priorities for removal. And yet on the 27th of January, a mere seven days after he was inaugurated, we had what was commonly referred to as the travel ban or Muslim ban in another executive order protecting the nation from foreign terrorists' entry into the United States. In the end, truly the signal was and the government goal became protecting jobs for U.S. citizens and other lawfully employed by instilling a culture of compliance and accountability and through rigorous enforcement and administration of the laws governing immigration. And that's what we saw play out over the next four years, really. And it became a situation of employer beware. Now, the new paradigm was implemented through a multitude of various actions. There weren't very many changes to the law itself, but rather we saw a shift play out through executive orders. We saw a shift play out through interpretation in terms of new guidance, in terms of decisions being made. We saw a shift play out in terms of processing and enforcement. And these are just but a few of the things that were implemented. There were 46 policy memos and adopted decisions that were passed through the four years. Overall, immigration into the United States during the Trump administration simply became more difficult as greater scrutiny and additional requirements were placed on all sectors, whether it was family immigration, business immigration, legal versus illegal. There were increases in requests for evidence and with respect to notices of intent to deny. There were increases in direct denials given policy memos that came out. And then processing changes such as the implementation of the public charge rule, where you found that even the most highly paid executives were having to, to include 12 months of bank statements to prove that they were not going to become a burden on the government. So COVID-19 created additional challenges for all and all sectors, but it also gave an opportunity for the Trump administration to impose additional restrictions on business immigration. As a practitioner, and as Todd mentioned, we've, we've all been in close touch through all of this, but I know you as employers have faced these issues as well. In the waning hours of the Trump administration, the government was continuing to defend several lawsuits based on policies and procedural changes, also continuing to issue proposed rules and regulations, for example, with respect to the H-1B category, 
months before the lottery was going to be run, whether it was wage levels, whether it was allocation of uh, lottery numbers to more highly skilled of the applicants. Since President Biden was inaugurated in January, several of these measures have been rolled back, but many of them remain. So that gives some context to what we'll be looking forward to over the course of the next hour or so. And so like Dickens' first spirit, I'm going to leave you here and let my colleagues address where we are going now, where we are now, where we're going into the future. And I look forward to having this discussion with everyone. Great. Thank you very much, Elizabeth. I know the, the last four years have been very, very challenging from a, a lawyer's standpoint, trying to represent business immigration clients. And you and I have chatted many, many times over the last few years about, about those challenges. Oftentimes, these regulatory challenges or policy announcements or were policy announcements and, and made things very unpredictable because we were reacting after the fact when these policy announcements weren't announced in advance and our clients were often left in the lurch. So I think we're all looking forward, hopefully, to a little bit more predictability in the process. Well, with that in mind, you know, Elizabeth, you mentioned the fact that, that COVID has had a lingering effect on the process. I know we're all hoping that President Biden might bring a little bit more business-friendly approach to U.S. immigration policy. But I'm wondering, Nick, if you could help educate us on, on how that may have been stymied or, or made more difficult because of the, the pandemic. Thank you, Todd. Hello, everyone. Todd, I want to answer that question by perhaps providing a, a general overview of what has transpired overseas first with the visa processing at U.S. embassies and consulates around the world, and then how that has affected the ability of foreign nationals to obtain visas overseas and travel to the United States during the COVID pandemic. And then if there's time available, I'm not sure that there will be, but I want to take a chance and mention, if I can, just a few of the policies or changes that the government has implemented stateside in order to respond to the epidemic. And in that way, you'll be able to see, I hope, and appreciate, I hope, too, the lingering effects that the COVID pandemic and the government's response to it have had and continue to have on the, on the world of immigration. So lo looking overseas, let's go back to early 2020. After suspending all routine processing with embassies around the world, President Trump then signed presidential proclamations suspending the entry of most immigrants and then certain other foreign nationals who, it was thought, presented a risk to the U.S. job market. The suspension prevented H, L and J visa applicants from applying for visas as embassies overseas. President Biden rescinded the ban on immigrant visa processing in February this year, and he then allowed the ban on non-immigrant or temporary visas to expire by its own terms on March, uh, March 31 of this year. So the visa processing bans are no longer with us. However, although they're no longer with us, the suspension of visa processing during the last year has affected individuals and employers alike. Over the last year or more, families have not been able to get together without the ability to obtain a visa. And employers, they have no longer been able to continue and they couldn't continue the hiring process for H-1B specialty occupation workers or for their L-1 executives and managers transferring to the United States 
from their operations abroad. And that's even after the approval of a visa petition. And so let jobs have gone vacant and um, employers have been unable to fill them. And well, they've been left vacant unless they've been able to fill those jobs with American workers. But clearly, clearly, the expiration of the visa processing bans is welcome news. Sure. But foreign nationals shouldn't now, therefore, expect themselves to have it easy and expect immediate processing of their visa applications. The backlog of cases pending at the United States consulates around the world and the embassies around the world, the, the backlog has caused and it has been caused and it remains an ongoing issue. I mean, the Department of, of State, has, State has recently said that visa interview backlogs, that's, that's where the residency process is almost complete, except for the actual residency interview at the embassy or the consulate. Those, the interview backlogs have grown from 75,000 at the beginning of 2020 to more than 475,000 in January 2021. So it's going to take months and months, I mean, if not years, to clear the backlog and get things working and back to pre-COVID times. I mean, it has to. So, I mean, in order to deal with this huge backlog, embassies are now prioritizing. They're prioritizing immigrant visa processing first. They're triaging family-based applications. And only then are they processing the employment-based residency applications. And, and how long is it going to take? Nobody can really know how long it's going to take to get back to normal because the particular constraints vary based on, you know, from case to case, but from local conditions, country to country. It depends on lockdowns, travel restrictions, host country quarantines, you know, and even, even the, the, the measurements that embassies and consulates themselves are taking to prevent the spread of COVID. So there's a huge backlog of visas waiting to be processed the and the backlogs are, are going to be there for a while and those processing delays are really what we have to look forward to so not only this though as i will touch on now those visa applicants who are no longer subject to the the visa processing bans but those who are those who are physically present in one of 33 countries, now will continue to face additional obstacles before they can even enter the United States due to country-specific travel restrictions. Now, look, here, here's the background on the, the geographic or the country-specific travel bans. I mean, between January and the end of June 2020, President Trump signed three presidential proclamations suspending entry into the United States of all non-US citizens who were physically present in any one or more of over 30 countries during the 14-day period preceding their entry or attempted entry into the United States. The affected countries, mainly European countries, included the UK, Ireland, the 26 Schengen area countries, but they also included China, Brazil, and South Africa, and more recently, President Biden has added a fourth travel ban to include India as an affected country. Any physical presence now in these countries triggers the application of the ban, and that includes flight connections and layovers, and so you've got to be very careful when you travel. Now, having said this, 
these geographic-based travel bans do provide for exceptions to the rule. Primarily, they don't apply to U.S. citizens or lawful permanent residents and their family members. But amongst a, a list or a number of others on, who are restricted, those restrictions don't apply to those whose entry would be in the national interest. And it's this, this, the exception for those whose entry would be in the national interest, the national interest exception, that has been causing a lot of grief for visa applications and attorneys, people like us as well. Here's why. Since the beginning of the pandemic, the criteria for what constitutes a national interest exception that would permit the issuance of a visa to someone who would not otherwise be permitted to obtain a visa has been constantly evolving. Among those on the Secretary of State's most recent of a number of lists, but the most recent list of classes of travelers from the UK, Ireland, and the Schengen area countries whose travel to the US from these regions would be in the national interest include a number of categories, students among them, travelers who's going to be providing vital support for critical infrastructure sectors, and those whose purpose of travel is related to humanitarian purposes, public health response, and national security. But this all sounds great, doesn't it? The State Department is providing clarification. But, but, however, I must say, though, the differing results following in the interpretation of these categories that qualify for a national interest exception by when interpreted by each embassy or consulate office has just added to the confusion and difficulties that these travel bans have been causing for those affected in countries when try in, in the affected countries when trying to obtain a visa for travel to the United States. What we're finding is that one what works at one embassy in one country affected by the travel ban doesn't necessarily work in another country at another at another embassy in another country. So as a result, it's been extremely difficult for visa applicants and their attorneys to track and ultimately understand who qualifies for a, 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 a national interest exception, depending upon the locality. The bottom line, though, is that travelers in the permitted categories under the travel ban who wish to come to the United States, whether they have a visa already or not, but who believe they might qualify for a national interest exception, must contact the nearest U.S. embassy or consulate before traveling. So, you know, don't travel internationally unless you have to. That's still the advice, especially from these affected countries. That's the advice I'm giving to my clients, even if you've had a vaccination shot. Now, that's, that's what it's been like overseas. But what is the impact of COVID on employers stateside? Do they have back backlogs of visas to process and confusion is overseas? But what has been happening stateside? I don't have sufficient time to explain everything, but let me give you a quick note on a couple of items I'd like to, like to mention. Let's go very quickly to petition processing, just like visa processing in the states processing as well. USCIS went through the same drill over here as the embassies overseas. They initially suspended routine operations last year and are now slowly cranking up again. The good news, though, is that U.S. is now streamlining its processes to, to help speed visa processing, to reduce backlogs and 
and, and speed things along. Streamlining includes, for example, giving deference to the previous adjudication of visa, visa petitions when renewing or extending them. In, in other words, USCIS adjudicators are no longer, as they had to under the Trump administration, they are no longer required to go back and review the initial, the existing or the already approved petition that the one that's being extended in order to verify whether that initial approval was proper before they go ahead and permit the extension of it. Another time-saving change in the processing of petitions and applications is that USCIS is now not always requiring new biometrics, you know, photos and fingerprints from applicants for work authorization and the like. Now, hopefully, some of these changes will continue beyond the pandemic. But, but for, for um, employers here, you know, here's something that's, that I think is, is good that's come out of the pandemic. Back in March last year, ICE, Immigration and Customs Enforcement, relaxed the Form I-9 employment eligibility verification rules in response to COVID. As employers closed offices and employees started to work remotely last year, ICE, for the first time ever, permitted employers to review and verify the identity and work authorization documents of their newly hired employees remotely, you know, through video teleconferencing and emails and so on, and not in person, provided, though, that their employees were working remotely, as long as all employees were re working remotely. So with the ongoing pandemic, this policy change has been extended a couple of uh, multiple times. And most recently, it's been extended through the end of March. I'm uh, sorry, end of May, end of this month. However, during the last year, the problem has really been advising our clients because they, they have found it difficult to, to work out whether or not they could undertake virtual employment eligibility verification if only some but not all of their employees were working remotely. And, and now recently, ICE has clarified this. According to ICE now, employers can use virtual verification for their employees working remotely due to COVID-19 related precautions, whether or not all employees are working remotely. Those working remotely due to COVID are temporarily exempt from the I-9 physical inspection requirements until one, they return to the place of work on a regular basis and or two, of course, ICE terminates the policy change, whichever happens first. Now, right now, this policy change takes effect only as to employees hired on or after April 1, 2021. Now, having said that, though, employers, you shouldn't forget to make sure that you're properly pre prepared when the time comes to, prepare, uh, to returning to the office. ICE could end the virtual verification at any time. Of course, of course, they could extend it again. So remember, when that happens, you've got to still undertake the verification of, a, of identity and employment eligibility documentation in person. And you need to update your I-9s within the usual required three days upon returning to full operations. So where do we stand? I'll, I'll, I'll sum up. I'm really sum up what I've said. I think that stateside, there's a lot that might come out of this pandemic. Finding ways to streamline processing is the key to success 
for the immigration authorities as they come back to, you know, as they come back online to routine processing. However, although the ban on visa processing has expired or been rescinded, the backlog of cases pending at the U.S. consulates around the world remains an ongoing issue. And so, so additionally, not only that, those foreign nationals who are out there in these 33 affected countries and India now looking pretty bad, they're going to still be subject to the country-specific travel bans. They'll continue to require a national interest exception to authorize each entry to the United States. And, and, and so, as always, again, if you're going to travel, then be careful. I mean, those are my comments. Those, that is what I, I see going ahead at the moment, streamline and, and try to reduce backlogs. That's what I think has, has, are the lingering effects coming out of this COVID-19 pandemic. Fantastic. Thank you very much, Nick. It's really, really insightful, and, and it did uh, result in a couple of questions that I'd like to just throw out to the panel very, very quickly so we don't get too far off track. And, and I, folks, I have to admit that we are trying to pack about uh, a month's worth of material into an hour and a half. So I apologize that, that we're having to speed through this, uh, but we want to answer as many questions as we can. So one of the questions that we had, and, and Ryan, I know you've had a lot of experience with this, is, is what are you seeing companies do now, companies that were used to you know, bringing people over to the U.S. on short-term assignments and then found themselves due to the issues under Trump and then also due to COVID not being able to do that as freely. How are you seeing your clients react? A lot of my clients have been initiating kind of retraining of employees to make the employees they have more versatile to cover some of the inabilities to bring people in internationally. They're using virtual training from abroad to get U.S. employees up to speed on what they would have the international employees doing. So those are those are some of the main techniques I've seen employers using to, to kind of cover the inability to bring to bring people in from outside the United States. Got it. Yeah, and another complication that we've seen arise from the, the COVID pandemic is something that's not necessarily specific to international workers, but it does have some unique impact on the international workers, and that's people working from home or working from locations within the U.S. that may not have originally been approved by, uh, you know, in their original visa petition. Are we seeing any relaxation of the rules there to allow for a little bit more mobility inside the U.S.? We haven't. I'll touch on that a bit in my wish list of things we would like to see. But right now, we're seeing a lot of employers develop policies on travel to get notification from their non-citizen employees about when and where they'll be moving so we can assess the impacts of that. Got it. So it sounds like it's a live issue. Thank you, Nick, for, for teeing that up for us. And thank you, Ryan, for answering these questions as a reminder. So with that in mind, I'm going to turn this over to my good friend, Melanie Keeney. Melanie, you and I have, have spoken in the U.S. together. We've spoken in Canada together and in China together. Now that we're all stuck in quarantine land, and hopefully coming out of that in, in the near term. What are you seeing in terms of the road ahead in a broad level on where Biden may be going, not from a humanitarian immigration perspective, which is what's dominating the news right now with the crisis on the border and so forth, but really more focused on business immigration? Well, thanks, Todd. I got to tell you, looking ahead, hopefully, is going to be a heck of a lot better than 
looking in the past. As Elizabeth and Nick mentioned, it has been brutal in business immigration over the last four years. And now I was, I'm a big optimist. So I thought, hey, we're gonna see some awesome changes. I think I, I might have to step that back. Um, we have seen positive changes and I'm not going to go through some of those, but I think we have to, rem in my mind, I think we have to remember that Biden is maybe moderate on immigration in, some, in the business context. We're seeing some actions that, that make us think that perhaps on H-1B workers and on wage issues that the Biden administration may not go as far as we would like him to go with respect to supporting supporting business in that in that space. So what I thought I would do is talk a little bit about just timing and context. For instance, you know, Baja, do you guys remember Baja, Buy American, High American? That was an executive order that came out at the beginning of the Trump administration. And it basically empowered and directed agency heads to try to change policy and uh, regulations to support and protect American workers. And the, the implications of Baja were that we saw many, many, many changes with respect to kind of pulling back on positive immigration for businesses and protecting American workers. So that was rescinded, the Biden administration has rescinded that effectively January 25th of 2021. So then we started to see some more positive changes. What else did we see? So um, Nick touched on one particular area. On March 31st, 2021, Biden allowed the non-immigrant visa ban to lapse. Um, so for all of you out there in the audience who have H's and L's and E's and O's or whomever else you have that were stranded abroad, we were all celebrating because we thought, hey, we're going to be able to get those people back into the United States. But I would uh, I would caution everyone because, as Nick said, those geographic travel bans have made it difficult for people who are coming in from those countries to get here. And in fact, what we've seen, particularly in Europe, is that people who are going to get visa appointments uh, for their for their ages and their L's and whatever who may not qualify for it, who don't qualify for an NIE, the national interest exception, are getting denied that underlying visa. So don't shoot your immigration lawyer over that. That's not really right. Uh, and there was a lawsuit filed in April to try to you know, back that up and say, hey, State Department, you still ought to issue that visa because those of you all H's and L's and whomever are stuck in those countries they ought to be able to get their visas and then go sit out their 14-day quarantine somewhere else. This is something new and more recent that we're seeing, and I think it's something important for everybody to know. Hopefully, there will be some positive resolution out of this lawsuit that was filed in April. But we just wanted to—I just wanted to mention that. So, so that is uh, that has been a, a not so positive situation. Something else to think about with with respect to those trying on with H's. And, and L's and such who are trying to get in with that, that national interest exception, having to go to the embassy, that can take a lot of time. I don't know if you all out there have asked for an NIE and they've been sitting out there in, uh, I feel like the black hole when we send them to the embassy sometimes. Many of us practitioners have been going to CBP, Customs Border Protection. Those are the guys and gals working at the airports to try to get NIEs issued there. Just FYI, we're seeing some step back on NIEs that were being issued by CBP. So that isn't as positive. So while we were hoping for more 
more movement. That is uh, not going as well as we thought. So uh, many of us have been trying to find ports of entry to, to work with, and uh, that list is getting smaller and smaller. Another thing just to, to think about practically for those of you in the audience who have perhaps L visas, blanket Ls, and for those large employers, uh, global companies who have L visa holders sitting in the United States and you're trying to process them, normally you would just send them to an embassy appointment abroad, have them renew their L and come back in. It is desperately difficult to try to get embassy appointments these days. So just heads up, uh, we're having to file extensions in the United States. We don't love those because of all those RFEs and such that have been issued. So you need to just consult your immigration attorney about best strategy given your situation. One thing that is positive that I thought I would share with you all is the February 2nd, 2021 memo on the H-1Bs. So for those of you who have computer occupations or H-1B visa holders and you're trying to get them in for computer occupations, there used to be an old memo back in 2000 where immigration, I can't remember, was INS or USCIS back then in 2000, basically said computer occupations can qualify as specialty occupations. Well, then in 2017, that policy was rescinded under the Trump administration. And, and those of you with computer occupation H-1Bs were seeing denials on extensions or you know denials on initial applications. And so we're happy to say that on February 2nd, the Biden administration actually rescinded that 2017 memo. So we're hoping to see some positive outcome in that area. And there was a Ninth Circuit decision on point and hopefully we're, we're gonna see some positive movement. What else have we seen? On March 12, 2021, the Department of Labor delayed what I would call a nasty rule with respect to how Department of Labor uh, calculates prevailing wages. And this significantly impacts H-1B uh, visa holders and then employers trying to get H-1B visas. And for those of you that were kind of in tune on this, you might remember a day that will live in infamy, in, at least in immigration, business immigration lawyer land, which was October 8th of 2020, when uh, the Department of Labor released a, a new and not just released proposed rule, but made it, made it effective, changing the, the way they calculated those levels, wage levels. And as those of you may remember, when you're doing H-1B visas, you have to file a labor condition application saying you're gonna pay the higher of the actual wage or the prevailing wage, whichever is applicable. And the prevailing wage levels, there are four of them, Level one was the 17th percentile, level two, the 34th percentile, level three, the 50th percentile, level four was the 67th percentile. Well, this new rule changed it so that level one was the 45th percentile, level two was the 62nd percentile, the level three, the 78th, and level four was the whopping 95th percentile for wages. So suddenly the wages got jacked way up and uh, there was a little bit of panic. So the good news was there was a lawsuit that was rescinded, but there was more proposed rules. And now the rule that's out there has been delayed until November 14th of 2022. They're studying that issue right now. What else have we seen? April 27th, reinstatement of the deference rule. Nick touched on this. This is a big deal. This is a really big deal because for those of you who've lived through a million RFEs on H-1B extensions, when you've had someone who's been on an H-1B for years, perhaps they're from India in a backlogged country, and you've just been getting H-1B extensions, and suddenly you were seeing RFEs or even denials, uh, that's because deference went away. Well, as Nick said, that deference is back. 
So we're hoping to see, this is positive, very positive, fewer RFEs on extensions as long as there hasn't been a material change. And then also the lottery, what's going on with the lottery, the H-1B lottery. There was a proposed rule out there basically that said that the lottery was gonna be run with a priority for highest wages. So when I mentioned those level one, level two, level three, level four wages, the way they're gonna run the lottery was, and may still be, that the lottery will prioritize the workers that have the highest level wage. So as you might remember, with respect to the H-1B cap, there's 65,000 visas allocated for each fiscal year, plus 20,000 for US master's degree or higher degree people. So what they do is, in practice, we all uh, register everybody that's going to have the wants to be in the lottery, and then uh, you pay your ten dollars per H-1B registration. You do that in March, and then USCIS runs the lottery. Well, instead of it being a random pick, now it would be based on how much you pay that person. So for those who are, you know, at the level four, your chances are great that you might get picked. But those for level one, highly unlikely you're going to have any level one picks. So there was a lawsuit actually filed yesterday to challenge that rule. So that lawsuit was it's like five plaintiffs, the Humane Society, thought that sounded pretty good, Humane Society, a group of dentists, a group of doctors, an IT company, and another company out of Alabama. These companies have challenged that rule. So we're gonna, the proposed rule. So we will see what happens with the lottery next year. We'd hope to see that this lottery rule would go away. That might benefit some of you if you pay really high wages, but for those of you that don't, uh, this lottery rule would have some negative effect. So that is basically kind of in a nutshell, Todd, some of the stuff that's going on right now with the, the Biden administration, we're hoping to see uh, continued improvement, but there are, as Nick said, many, many backlogs and delays and sort of negative policies that are hanging out there that we're hoping will, will change going forward. Thank you so much. It gives us all a lot of uh, room for optimism, hopefully, although it sounds like a lot of these policies are just going to take some time to work through with the hope that they go into the right direction. Is that your takeaway, Mel? Yeah, I think so. And, you know, it's just, you know, I had heard the American Immigration Lawyers Association, I guess, was keeping track, but there were over a thousand policy changes in immigration under the Trump administration. So imagine how much time it's going to take to change, undo, whatever. It's just going to be something we're going to have to watch. It's a process. So with a thousand policy changes during the Trump administration, that's about one per business day yeah. during the term yeah. of this. Yeah. yeah. Incredible. Yeah, yeah, that's it, right. it was, yeah. Well, hopefully this starts to, to resolve and, and become a little bit more user-friendly and more predictable for our clients, which was, of course, the big problem that we all had was the unpredictability. And so uh, having the deference policy in particular, which I know you highlighted, to me seems like perhaps the biggest victory we've had so far under this administration. I, I actually agree, Todd. I was, I was so excited to hear that that was back. Um, because actually, from a practical standpoint, if the immigration officers aren't sitting there issuing a million RFEs, maybe they'll work on a lot, you know, maybe they'll have time to move cases forward. So perhaps that will help with some of these backlogs. There was over a 100% increase in processing times in the last year and a half, I believe is what they've calculated. So yeah, I, there's a lot of work to be done, but I am, I am an optimist. Fantastic, fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Melanie. And now I'm going to turn things over to, uh, to Dan Oldenburg, 
Dan, let's get into the weeds a little bit about what actually has been changing so far from a regulatory standpoint. I know the, the Trump administration, the, the hallmark there was to not have changes being made to the law or to regulations, but rather the changes that we were seeing as practitioners that had massive ripple effects for our clients and their ability to sponsor international talent were really done at the policy level. But we're already starting to see the beginning of some regulatory changes and, and legislative changes. Do you mind uh, taking our audience here through an overview of what you've seen so far? Yes, Todd, I'm uh, happy to do that. You know, we've talked a lot about some of these changes, the, the minor ones and, and some of the, the major ones, or the, at least the potential for these. And so I was going to, much like Melanie did, just kind of go through some of the recent policy tweaks, some of the recent regulation changes, and kind of give you guys an idea of where we might expect to see some, some of those benefits for our clients. And so, again, uh, some of this is going to be repetitive because there's a little overlap in terms of what we discussed because I think we're all finding out that this, obviously, the deference rule, for example, is going to be very beneficial to, to all of us. But I wanted to sort of take this in a, in a chronological order also and start with May 4th, the most recent one, um, sort of the suspension of biometrics for H4 EADs. And this is a big one for a lot of your H1B dependents who have H4 status and are, may have H4 EADs, uh, that's Employment Authorization Document. And so this is sort of the same backlog that, that we saw under the Trump administration, compelled even more so by um, COVID, but these, these long backlogs for EAD issuance for H4 spouses. And I hear about this probably on a daily basis. And it all started first with USCIS no longer giving a courtesy premium processing to the, the uh, change of status or the extension of status for H-1B dependents. And then along with that, we saw this requirement for biometrics, and then the H-4 just kind of fell in the black hole. And again, get in line and wait for your EAD. And so we did see this with welcomed. So the welcome to change that the biometrics were no longer going to be required. And again, hopefully that little change will compel some kind of movement with the uh, EADs for H4s. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on the April 27 deference. My colleagues have done a great job talking about that. So that's, that's really good. Um, we saw that. I did want to mention the final rule on EB-5, the Immigrant Investor Program. There, there was um, a memo that came out, or actually it was a, uh, the affirmation by Secretary Mayorkas that basically confirmed the increased investment amounts under this modernization program that came out in the Federal Register back in July. And there was widespread speculation that the $1.8 million and $900,000 targeted employment area respective investment amounts were going to come back to the 1 million and 500,000, but that did not happen. There is a lawsuit filed on that also, and so we're, we're watching that. But that is um, one of the EB-5 tweaks that we were hoping would come back down. I mean, uh, it would seem to make sense trying to stimulate the economy in a post-COVID world that we would want a lot of um, investment opportunity to be at those lower amounts to allow more people to get into the game. Um, and we'll see what happens there. 
Okay, so March 9th, 2021, um, I think all of us breathed a great sigh of relief when the public charge rule came out, the final rule, halting that application. Again, um, this was one of those Trump-era policy changes that was, in my opinion, more of a nuisance than anything else. So it was like dropping a small pebble in your shoe while you're walking because it was a 20-page form that required adjustment of status applicants to prove that they were not going to be inadmissible based on a public charge ground, that they were going to rely on government assistance in some way, and that they would be precluded from adjustment of status on this basis. And most of my clients and all my colleagues on this panel, you know, our clients are predominantly business and employment-based clients who are earning sufficient income and would never have any kind of inadmissibility issue with respect to public charge. Nonetheless, we were all forced to uh, fill out this giant form and include a lot of financial information, credit scores, and things we've never had to include before. And so I think we were all happy to see when we were able to put our pencils down, stop working, the I-944 is no longer needed. And so that was a very welcome change. Baja, Melanie did a good job addressing that. Elizabeth touched on Baja. Again, one of those overarching internal changes. And, you know, everybody likes a good war story, so I have a Baja war story that, that I'll share with us, uh, everybody today. And it involves an L1A where I got a request for evidence um, asking that um, we show that our multinational manager coming to the United States would not displace an American worker and that this multinational L1A coming over would be instrumental in the creation of additional jobs for U.S. citizens. Uh, neither of those requirements are in the L1 regulations. You don't have to show either of those. Yet, when I looked at that, I thought, oh, there is Baja rearing its ugly head in the middle of my L1A case. And so we very diplomatically but forcefully reminded USCIS that those aren't requirements. And it's counterintuitive and, you know, counterproductive to allow a visa category for multinational managers coming to the U.S. but then show that we weren't going to displace a U.S. worker. Well, the manager's coming on the L1A precisely because we can't find a U.S. worker in that C-suite level executive capacity. So it really didn't make any sense, but uh, I think that was probably Baja in general. And so now I'd like to transition briefly and go into the one piece of legislation that's out there. There are two bills, the Citizenship Act of 2021. Uh, there's mirror bills in the Senate and the House for this, and I'd like to just kind of walk through what's in and what's out with respect to this proposed legislation. But before we get to the details of it, I think my colleagues would agree with me that this is sort of an aspirational piece of legislation and that we really don't believe it has a chance of passing. And I think that's the case because it is such an aggressive attempt to reform the immigration laws. And in the past, we haven't really seen comprehensive immigration reform get much traction. Normally immigration changes are carried out piecemeal, little tweaks here or there, a little issues here or there, uh, and not any kind of large scale, certainly nothing of this magnitude. And while it focuses a lot on the dreamers, people with temporary protected status and sort of pathways 
for people who made unlawful entries to the United States. There's also a few things in there that would be relevant to our business, immigration, and employment clients, uh, and I kind of want to highlight those. And if there are other people who um, on this panel who have other um, ideas or thoughts about some of these proposals, they can certainly weigh in uh, accordingly. Uh, I would just start by mentioning that there's this increase in EV, that's employment-based visas, the ceiling, the annual cap will go up by about 30,000 visas. The 7% per country cap would be raised to a 20%. So even high-volume countries like India and China would be able to have the cap raised from 7% to 20%. And then a lot of these make, I think, good sense, like the recapture of unused visas from the period of 1992 to 2020. And again, this is all being done to, to alleviate what, what Nick and Melanie and Elizabeth have, have highlighted, uh, is to eliminate these backlogs. I don't think we can really get the immigration system moving again until we get through these backlogs. And so these are some legislative proposals that will at least reduce the backlog. And some of them are pretty aggressive, like uh, capping wait times at 10 years. I mean, that, that just sounds crazy saying it. We're going to 10 years is the most you have to wait. Well, uh, think about what that means. You've got 10 years to wait uh, before you'd be able to apply for your, your permanent residency. And then another, I think, real practical one is a one-year extension for Fs and uh, L1s and O1s. Um, this is sort of the, the AC21 for other non-immigrant visas, uh, where if you have an I-140 immigrant petition for alien worker or a labor certification that's been uh, pending or approved for a year or more, you can extend those visas by a year. In the enforcement arena, uh, we see this uh, amendment to Title V, which would expand and increase liability. And generally, we're all adverse to any kind of increase in the scope of liability, unless you're a plaintiff's attorney, I guess. But there are um, some changes, the increase in I-9 fines and violations for employers. And then also, the office, it used to be called Office of Special Counsel under the Department of Justice. Now it's the Immigrant Employee Rights Division. They would actually be given greater jurisdiction um, and even handle more of what the EEOC handles now. Uh, so that's part of the enforcement package that's being proposed in the Citizenship Act uh, of 2021. We see the foreign doctoral students from U.S. universities with STEM degrees would not be subject to the numerical visa limit. So here again, our, our best and brightest would be able to move to the front of the line and would not be subject to uh, the quotas on employment-based visas. Dual intent extended to F1s. A lot of times students are not allowed to have immigrant intent, and that muddies the waters with respect to how F1s progress towards permanent residency. Usually they have to go on to a visa that does have dual intent, like the H-1B, and then make that transition to, to, to permanent residency. There's this unique sort of pilot program for economic development. And again, I think this is to jumpstart the economy in a post-COVID world. And that includes these uh, additional 10,000 visas uh, for sort of uh, economic development programs. But these would be for employers who would qualify for this program. Uh, and it would require a labor certification to sponsor employees in these, in these areas. It would not include startups. Um, then we have all these agricultural workers 
the H2A workers who've been coming every season. There's a pathway provided in the Citizenship Act for them to, to achieve permanent residency. I would note that what's not in there is an increase in the H2B numbers. Those are your peak or seasonal workers, peak load workers under the H2B. There's 66,000 of those visas every fiscal year. They're given out 33,000 in each half of the year. No mention uh, on H2B numbers. And again, you know, there's a lot in there, and I'm just trying to pull out what I thought would be the most salient to, to our um, audience today. Now, here's one, though. Dependents of H-1Bs would be eligible for work authorization. So we'll go back to your H-4 scenario that we talked about. Uh, there would be no need for this biometrics or this having to have the I-140 approved before the H-4 spouse could be eligible for employment authorization. It would just be part and parcel of the H-1B and derivative H-4 visa. You just automatically would get work authorization with that much like the J-2 right now. So again, that baffles me as to why we don't have work authorization for H-4s automatically, but I don't make the rules. And so what's missing, what's lacking, is the return um, of the courtesy premium processing for H-4s. There's no mention of that. I know that is on Ryan's wish list. He'll get to that, and I'm excited to hear what he has to say about the other items on his wish list. And so again, what's lacking is no direct increase in the cap subject H-1B numbers. And that's really where I take issue with any kind of wholesale immigration reform. And certainly with the Citizenship Act of 2021, it seems to be very heavy on trying to eliminate the backlog and correct things on the permanent residency end. But if you really understand U.S. immigration from a systemic point of view, you can't just correct things on the back end. We've got to correct them on the front end also. And so it's my opinion that we've got to work on correcting the non-immigrant visa delays and the non-immigrant visa shortages. And if we're, if we're really going to make some lasting impact to the immigration reform we need so vitally. So again, the fact that, that the H-1B just kind of been left out of this is, is somewhat troubling. There was not a lot of uh, little to no EB-5 discussion or EB-5 reform. Uh, I talked about that briefly before. And then nothing specific to international medical graduates or other international health care workers other than, you know, increasing the overall EB visas every year by, by 30,000 more. That would certainly help them. But COVID showed us the, how much we rely on international medical graduates uh, in, our, in our country uh, and the shortage of, of international health care workers. And so I think that has to be part of any kind of reform. So that was really a lot. I'm happy to, to discuss in greater detail if we have other questions afterwards. But Todd, that's, um, that's my take on the Citizenship Act of 2021. Thanks so much, Dan. There's a lot to unwrap out of all that, and, and we're just hopeful that some of these reforms will actually make it into law as, a, as opposed to just a, uh, a, a prospective policy announcement. So it's, it's exciting that at least it's being considered and we're moving hopefully from a business immigration perspective into the right direction where we are, are looking at uh, policies that will actually enable U.S. employers to, again, bring the best and brightest into our economy, uh, which, of course, is one of the primary goals of the business immigration laws in the U.S. With that being said, I'd like to now turn it over to uh, Ryan Helgeson. Ryan, 
you were really the impetus for this whole uh, webinar a few weeks ago when you sent our entire group your, your wish list of things you'd like to see changed. And, and so I'm curious, now that you've had time to, to see more than 100 days with the, with the current administration and have had time to reflect more on, on what you think is the most important or what would be the most important changes to the business immigration uh, community, what made your top 10 list? Thank you, Todd, and thank you, everybody, for attending. So, as Todd mentioned, this section is kind of a, a, a wish list for business immigration policy changes that, if they came to be, would provide a substantial benefit to businesses that hire non-citizen employees. We believe these changes would increase predictability, as has been mentioned throughout this seminar, the dealings with USCIS would gain more predictability, processing times would decrease, and processes would simplify overall. Essentially, the changes we want to see would save you time and money, which is a win-win for everyone. As we heard Daniel just talking about, there have been quite a bit or some proposed legislation um, from the Comprehensive United States Citizenship Act to more piecemeal proposals involving DACA and farm workers. We've also heard about how the Biden administration has been primarily focused on the family-based or permanent residence side of the immigration world. However, as everyone here would agree, business immigration reforms are also very important to the individual businesses and to the economy as a whole. But those reforms seem to have been forgotten or pushed aside under Biden. So the focus will be on quick, relatively easy reforms, the low-hanging fruit that won't necessarily take legislation to occur. Most of this wish list can be enacted through policy changes at the agency level. So the, the top 10 list, and this list could have been 100 items long, really to, to make things easier for everyone. And it's in no particular order could have been A through J, but that doesn't make quite a good as title. First is expansion of premium processing. This process, as most of you know, would, would for an extra fee guarantee a response from USCIS within 15 calendar days. However, it's only available to just a few visas or certain types of applications. Expanding it to all statuses, particularly those that involve employment authorization, or the employment authorization form itself would remove a lot of the gaps in employment that people are seeing, especially for spouses of H and Ls, um, the H-4 and L-2 visa holders that have experienced a lot of employment gaps due to delayed processing times. The ability to premium process would remove that. Second is uh, enforce a policy against the broad brush RFEs that we're seeing the requests for evidence, you know, seek additional information, but most of them that are issued are, are just templated documents that cover every criteria that's, that's the visa. They, they essentially make you redo the petition with more information. By issuing more targeted RFEs, you know, it can, one, create a, a more certainty in responding to actual deficiencies in the, in the petition, which would save time and increase the chances for approval, along with lowering the RFE rate. If it's more difficult for them to issue an RFE to where they have to actually 
read the petition before you know issuing a, a template statement you know obviously the the rate would go down third has to do with changing the definition of material change as i talked about briefly earlier in responding to a question the policies that we currently have aren't up to date with the reality of the business world you know a lot of our laws are at least 20 to 25 years old so essentially changing the definition of material change is kind of lawyer speak for saying that H-1B regulations should catch up to the new reality of remote work and eliminate that need to file an amended petition just because the employee moves to a new house that happens to be outside of the normal commuting distance of where they were before. You know, there are, again, hundreds of changes like this that are needed to catch the law up to the reality of business um, as it runs today. As Dan touched upon, um, we'd also like to see concurrent adjudication of derivative petitions um, in the H, L, and E categories. Again, because they have employment or potential employment authorization, this would eliminate some of those gaps you see in that authorization and, and keep people working. Expanding online filing capabilities and include some real-time status updates. This has been, I suppose, a goal of USCIS for a decade now, but it's really only available for a very small number of petitions. So if you can expand this you know, established technology to more petitions or all petitions, it would save time and the costs associated with creating and mailing paper forms. And again, you have more predictability and control over the the part of the process um, you know, that's kind of left to a third party delivery service and USCIS opening packages, um, which has been, there's been a lot of havoc with that during COVID-19. Number six is reestablishing customer service access. This is more on the attorney side, I think, than the employer side, but it would, it would definitely benefit employers because it would allow the attorneys the ability to contact USCIS about particular issues they're facing. I don't think it's an, an underestimate to say that 90% of the ways we use to contact USCIS on a national or um, local level have gone away. Essentially, customer service is no longer a thing <laughs> with USCIS. The last S stands for service and it's, they need to change their name if they're not gonna change the way they do things. The creation of a, an entrepreneur visa category is something we would like to see. This probably would take legislation. There has recently been the introduction of a, an entrepreneur parole status, which is an excellent thing and, and certainly a step in the right direction. We would like to see that become a, a formal visa to have the, the credibility and the certainty that comes along with that. Um, and that could really drive drive economic growth. So many immigrants uh, use or start businesses here in the proportions much larger than, than U.S. citizens. That, that would be a, a great way to, to drive the economy. Number eight is a, a redesign of the H-2A and H-2B categories to create kind of a, another visa. My sincere condolences to anyone who has to frequently use this system. It is a nightmare and a mess and it keeps getting worse. And frankly, it 
needs to be scrapped and started over. Nothing about it makes sense for businesses and how they use their temporary labor. As, as Dan mentioned, there are some recommendations for improving the agricultural side of it, um, but the, the peak load and temporary or seasonal need um, employees, there's no mention of that and that, that too really needs to be fixed. Number nine is an extension of OPT or STEM OPT employment authorization limits for those that are not selected in the H-1B lottery. As we've mentioned, the H-1B cap, it probably is going to be raised in this current climate. So the next best thing they could do would be to allow those students who are here and wanting to get H-1Bs and the employers who wanna keep that talent by getting them H-1Bs is to increase the number of chances they have to get selected in the cap by extending their employment authorization as long as someone's uh, seeking an H-1B for them. It, it doesn't, you know, there's no, they won't run out of time just because they've had bad luck in the cap. And then finally, we'd like to see a, a change in policy for recapturing immigrant visas. And that would also exempt family members from the employment-based visa account. Again, this is kind of more lawyer speak for saying we want more employment-based visas available or green cards available that would help eliminate the backlogs um, that we've talked about all day long. And it would, uh, it would make sense just to establish a better way of counting who is getting an employment-based green card and really make more available, which again, increases the ability for U.S. employers to retain retain their talent. So those are the top 10 of what could have been many to think about. Great. Thanks so much, Ryan. We did have, we, we've, ladies and gentlemen, we, we we're supposed to be concluding now, but we had some questions come in. And so the panelists have all agreed to stay on for just a few more moments to answer some of the questions that have come in. One of the attendees wanted to know about business travel restrictions to Austria and Germany. Elizabeth, I know you spend a lot of time advising clients on business issues arising out of Austria and Germany. What, what are you seeing in that space? Hi, thanks, Todd. Yes, as a as honorary consul in Germany for Germany, I uh, tend to to get some of the uh, inside information, so to speak, about travel at least to Germany. Um, but Europe, as many know, particularly those working with European companies or our Europeans. The restrictions in Europe have been pretty much in place for over a year now with various waves of lockdowns and such. The best place to get information is to go, for example, for Germany. The foreign ministry has up-to-date uh, requirements in terms of testing, quarantine, and those types of restrictions to go into Europe. Quite frankly, with all of the travel bans coming into the United States. Who jumped first is a little hard to say, but Americans going to Germany for tourism, absolutely no. But uh, even for business, there is a lot of restrictions and continue to be restrictions. Um, I'm happy to answer questions for anybody offline if they want to know where they can best get information. But I would say just as it is the case for business travelers coming into the United States, particularly from the restricted 
countries that Nick had mentioned, um, it's similarly difficult for U.S. workers to get into Austria, Germany, and other countries in Europe at the moment, although we are seeing some likelihood that restrictions will ease, particularly for vaccinated travelers. Fantastic. Thank you, Elizabeth. Uh, we have one uh, one attendee who's, I think, understandably frustrated that the government does not understand why we have proven uh, that work from home and working remote is possible and, and wants to know why the government would not grant more employment-based visas or else she fears that, uh, that companies will just outsource that overseas. Um, I'm going to open that up to the, to the panel to see if anyone has a thought there on, on what direction they think that we are going to go in. I mean, certainly the, the direction was clear under Trump, and that was, uh, and I'm not trying to be political in saying that, but that was to constrict the flow of inbound talent into the U.S. Do we have a real sense yet, because there is still a, a strong populist bent in both parties, do we think that, that there is an appetite when, uh, you know, when things come online again and people are, are able to travel more freely whether or not we will see, um, you know, we will see a loosening of restrictions on, on U.S. business immigration in general. I would say, and I'll, I'll just jump in there, Todd. I, I mean, I do think we may see, and hopefully some of these regulatory and other changes may pop in, but I think just as with any any employer and company, U.S. immigration aside, the remote work, the work from home, I think we're going to see a different workplace moving forward. And uh, the fact that employers are also seeing potentially lower costs by not having the expat contracts, not having the everyone needing to go home once a year, the families here, um, we may, regardless of the opening of, of immigration continue to see international workers staying remote um, and more emphasis on those skills. I think this question came up earlier uh, and Ryan touched upon it as well. Uh, I'm seeing more vigilance on the behalf of employers to make sure that the workers that they're transferring into the United States or bringing into the United States truly are those that they absolutely need. I mean, it's always been the case being a business immigration lawyer for more than 20 years now. I, I think we on the inside have seen that, but I, I see employers being more conscientious about that type of thing. And we're highlighting more and more the importance of these high skills that are not available here and bringing them in. And that's going to be the case. And my hope as all of us have, have articulated uh, is that under the Biden administration and moving forward, um, we will see more loosening of these higher standards and strict scrutiny. Fantastic. Thank you, Elizabeth. It, one of the things that's interesting about, about our economy, and this is more of a comment than a question to the group, but uh, is, is so much is generated out of our university system. You know, and, and one of the challenges that I've seen coming out of the pandemic is the ability to retain these international students who are graduating and have a lot to add to the U.S. economy that are faced with the option of, of really having to work remotely oftentimes and, and not be able to stay here locally and add to the economy. I'm wondering if anyone on the, on the panel has had that experience where they've had clients that have sought to 
hire international students that are graduating this year that would really like to stay in the States and add to the U.S. economy and, and the challenges that you've seen with our clients when, when they can't get into the H-1B lottery and so forth. Todd, I, if I could jump in on that one, I have to tell you that that is exactly what we've seen. You know, when businesses have, have really stepped up with respect to, you know, even like litigation and that lawsuit that I just mentioned about the lottery rule, the H-1B lottery rule, one of the employers in there is a, is a, I think it's a logistics company out of Alabama, and the petition, the lawsuit actually talks about this highly skilled worker who was someone who was on a, on a visa, F1 visa, probably STEM OPT, and they really need this person, and they can't find other people, and under that lottery rule, if it were to go into effect, you know, she wouldn't, they can't pay that giant high wage, like a level four wage for that person. So I think that how are the, you know, employers dealing with solutions if people don't get picked in the lottery? And we've seen the need sometimes to actually start the green card process early on to hope that we might be able to have someone on an employment authorization, green card employment authorization before their status expires. So looking creatively at how do we come up with the backup plan and the backup plan to the backup plan. We've been doing quite a quite a lot of that and traveling abroad, people pursuing additional degrees, curricular practical training for, with an advanced degree. There are all kinds of options that we've looked at, but it's it's not like employers don't want to hire US workers. But you know, as this lawsuit really emphasizes, there are many there are many jobs that go unfilled particularly in high tech, in the high tech world, uh, depending on where the employer is. And so I'm hoping to see some movement, some positive movement, but I think some, we're still going to see litigation in this area going forward. Great. Thank you so much, Melanie. And thanks to everyone else that's on the panel, Nick, Ryan, Melanie, Dan, Elizabeth. I really enjoyed this discussion, uh, and I hope the audience did as well. And unfortunately, we have more material to cover, but I think we've run out of time for today. So with that being said, Pete, I'd like to turn things back over to you to close us out. Thanks, Todd, and also to our panel for sharing their thoughts and advice on today's topic. If you'd like to connect with any of our lawyers on the program, please search for them on the ELA website at ela.law. There you can find and receive invitations for upcoming webinars, download white papers, get access to on-demand content from the online library, or access the ELA's exclusive Global Employer Handbook. You've been listening to Employment Matters, a podcast brought to you by the Employment Law Alliance, the world's largest network of labor and employment lawyers from the best law firms around the globe. I'm Pete Waltz. Thanks for listening.